Hello and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. Hello and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief, and I have the distinct pleasure of speaking today with Dr. George Haruza. As you know, Dr. Haruza is the current president of the American Academy of Dermatology. He's also an adjunct professor at St. Louis University, and I am really excited to be speaking with him today on the issue of advocacy. Welcome, Dr. Haruza. Well, thank you. Glad to be here. Well, can you first update for our listeners what some of the hot topics are as far as advocacy in dermatology today? Well, there are a number of issues. Um, the one that we're dealing with quite intensely right now is prior authorization. It's a headache, it's really a pain in the neck for just about all of our members because of the amount of time they spend on it. Dr. Lebwall has three full-time staff in, at Mount Sinai just dealing with prior authorization. And we've had some successes. We've had prior authorization reform uh, for a Medicare Part D where it's been streamlined to make it, uh, make it a lot easier and improve the appeals process. This year we are pushing for prior authorization reform for Medicare Advantage plans where we don't only get prior authorization reform for drugs, but in fact a lot of insurance companies are now asking us to get prior authorization for procedures. And even for procedures that you can't anticipate that you're going to have the procedure. Right. So we're trying to fix that, and uh, this legislation would do that for Medicare Advantage plans. And then we've actually had some success in states. In Missouri, where I live, we've uh, last year we got a bill where when it was presented to the legislature, the insurance company lobbyist said it's the worst bill they ever saw. <laughs> and so we were very pleased that we were able to get that passed. Wow. Good job. Another recent advocacy success is with the issue of in-office compounding. So this is something that affects dermatologists all the time, whether it's mixing up a steroid that we're going to inject. Sometimes we dilute those down. Um, botulinum toxin for cosmetic use is another example. Um, but probably the most common dilution that we use in surgery is to buffer our lidocaine with sodium bicarb. What is happening with regards to in-office compounding? So in-office compounding, or we like to call it in-office preparation of sterile medications, it's been a hot thing for about two years now. We've been dealing with it and made some progress. So we've been able to get the FDA to basically back off to say, if you do in-office things such as buffering lidocaine, even though we consider it compounding, we're not actually gonna go into your offices to, to, to check on that. It's part of their draft guidance on insanitary conditions. So the FDA has kind of backed off a little bit. However, United States Pharmacopeia, or USP, published their revisions to Chapter 797, which deals with compounding and which is, once approved, ends up being adopted by states. Originally, they said if you buffer lidocaine in the office, you, can, you have to use it within one, hour one hour's time from the time you prepare it to the time you inject it. Okay. We were able to get it moved to four-hour window, Wow. which helps you a little bit, but still not very much because many offices actually been using it probably for several days sure. because it's good for quite a, quite a few days. So we're actually working with USP in studying. We have to do the special testing, which basically they inject bacteria into the buffered lidocaine mm -hmm. to see if it grows. Wow. 
And so the early results are promising. So we are hoping that if this testing is fully successful, and then there's a separate taste, a set of tests called stability testing has to be done. And if we do get that, which means that the lidocaine with epinephrine is stable for a certain amount of hours or days, then we will get what's called a monograph, which would say that if you use this type of buffer lidocaine, prepare it in a very specific way, then you might be able to keep it longer than four hours. So why does this matter? Is USP a governing body or does legislation follow? Why is it important that we follow their guidelines? Well, USP is actually a private nonprofit organization. AAD has been successful in going forward. We actually were able to get a seat on USP going forward and we also Dr. Vidimas on the Committee on Compounding. And she's a pharmacist, And she's a she? pharmacist as well. So, so she's been very helpful, and that's, I think, a big reason why we were able to get at least that initial expansion and talked about the monograph. So even though they're not a government body, their recommendations are in legislation, meaning okay. FDA, for example, is required to follow what USB this Got determines. It. So they're kind of, a, I call it almost a quasi-governmental body. And already several states have already adopted the 797 with a four-hour rule. Okay. So the big issue is that now pharmacists or pharmacy boards will actually be able to come into your office to inspect your office to tell you how to practice medicine, which wow. we find very disturbing. And we are trying to, state by state, say that if you're going to do this USP requirement for the offices, it should be regulated by the Board of Healing Arts, not by the Pharmacy Board. That seems more appropriate. Well, I'm glad we're at least making some progress. Four hours is better than one, and, and hopefully we can come to some conclusion that is helpful for everyone. Another issue that I've heard a little bit about which may not appear to be relevant to dermatologists, but actually it is, is the issue of surprise billing. So can you tell us a little bit about what surprise billing is and why it's important to dermatology? Sure. Well, surprise billing is, uh, is very hot in Congress right now. And what it usually deals with is a patient goes to an emergency room uh, or to a hospital for some procedure where the hospital is in their network, yet the anesthesiologist or maybe the emergency room doctor is not in network. And so then the patient gets a bill from those physicians, which may be significantly higher, and they would certainly have much more out-of-pocket costs because they would have to use their out-of-network benefits. And there have been some excessive abuses. There was one anesthesiologist in New York that billed a patient $100,000 for anesthesia services. So Congress is very interested in this. And so we've been supportive of some of the legislation, which uh, basically holds the patient harmless. So they're just going to be subject to their usual copay deductibles, coinsurance. And then the, it's supposed to be agreed between the insurance company and the physician. The problem is that the current legislation that seems to be the has the most legs in Congress would set the rate to the out-of-network physician at the median in-network rate. And by doing that, you would eliminate really any reason for a plan to have physicians in their network right. or to negotiate with physicians because out of network, they're going to have the same rate. And on top of it, they can narrow their network, reduce their payments, so the average goes down. So overall, you're going to have, it's going to be a race to the bottom. Now, it doesn't at this point affect dermatologists. Mm -hmm. However, 
when they when the, when the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, looked at it, they they saw nine billion dollars of savings for the government by doing this. So, if this passes in the current form, it's going to become irresistible right. for the for the government to say, well, why don't we apply this to all out of network services yeah. across the country, such as dermatologists who are not in the network, and then again you'll end up with a race to the bottom, with potentially collapse of the whole private fee-for-service system. So so it's a really important issue, and we do have friends in Congress, some of the physicians in Congress who are recommending a different version of the bill, and we're hoping to make progress there, which would basically set the rate at some more reasonable, such as some measure of usual and customary fees or some other third-party measure. Well, I hope I certainly hope that we come to a solution for that. Um, there are also some changes within DermPath reimbursement recently, correct? Yes. So we have issues. Of, this is that gets them more into the specific insurance company issues. And so we have one of the major insurers in, in a number of states, including Missouri, has uh, notified their dermatopathologists uh, that take care of, you know, it could be dermatologists or dermatopathologists, basically those that provide dermatopathologist services. Uh, that they would be getting paid at about a 50% rate of Medicare, Medicare rate, 50%, one half, which, as I think most of us know, is totally impractical and not doable. And the, the end result will be that uh, all, the, all those labs will have to pull out of that plan and the dermatologists will send their pathology specimens to the big national labs, which have lots of issues with them because you don't know who's going to be reading your slides. Right. It's maybe a different person each time. Correct. It's not so easy to communicate with them. You need yeah. clinical pathologic correlation for dif- difficult melanocytic lesions and some uh, inflammatory diseases. So it's really going to have a negative impact on patient care. Yes. So we're making every effort. I'm just suggesting that if you're in that area and you're aware of that, if you find that there is, if you have any comments to make to the insurer, I think it's a good time to speak up and let your concerns known about it. Because so far we have had very little success in communicating our concerns about the, how it's going to affect quality of patient care. Thank you. Another issue that we've seen recently is the issue of modifier 25. It's the modifier that we use when we do a procedure on the same day as an office visit. Um, tell us what's happening with regards to this modifier. Well, I can start with the good news. We've had incredible success, a huge win, probably the biggest win we've had in a number of years, which is that last year CMS had recommended to pay only 50% on the ENM visit when you do a procedure on the same day with the modifier 25. And through working with our allies, CMS decided to basically put it back on the shelf, meaning they're not going to be touching it. They're really lost interest in that area at this okay. point. So that's been a huge win. However, the, some of the plans continue trying to um, make, a, um, make some sort of a little bit of end runs around it. So a few plans in the East Coast still have this cut that they do. So we're still dealing with some of that. All the other ones that were going to do it, uh, Anthem, uh, United Healthcare, and there were a few others, they basically all backed off now that CMS has backed off. However, they've come up with another interesting twist on it is that they say if you 
do have two visits within about two months of each other, and then you do a procedure on one of those visits, and they're all with the same diagnosis, same or similar diagnosis, then they will not pay for the visit with the procedure. So think of someone who's getting ultraviolet light therapy and they get seen every, every certain number of visits as you're supposed to see every certain number of light treatments, they're not gonna pay for that visit for the light treatment. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, it affects a small number of situations as opposed to the general modified 25 issue. So I think I feel pretty good about overall we've done well. And of course, I'm just gonna put a plug in right here because the modified 25 issue and another related issue called deal with global periods, which we've also were able to save for a number of years, is that it, those are not, would not have been possible if people were not engaged, involved, which allows us to get that access we need in order to make our case. Well, we all have busy practices, and maybe not everyone can take time to get as involved in advocacy as others, but we certainly can contribute financially and have someone do that on our behalf. One issue that many patients have brought up lately during office visits is the issue of safety of sunscreen, both for the patient and also for the coral reef. And and sometimes sunscreens have been outlawed in certain areas or uh, banned. Tell us a little bit about what's going on there. So the the sunscreen issue has really been in the news a lot. And uh, there are two components to it. We have not had a new sunscreen in the United States approved in decades. Wow. And so it was designed for that. However, what happened instead, two years later we have no new sunscreens, which is very challenging because all these ingredients are generic. Mm -hmm. So which company is gonna wanna spend millions of dollars to go through this testing? And then on top of it, FDA decided we should actually have uh, the sunscreens that are currently on the market, the chemical sunscreens, need to undergo the same type of testing or they might have to be pulled off the market. So that put a lot of scare into into people. They didn't say they're unsafe, but the problem is when they said, well, you should be looking at this. And then on top of it, then they published a paper saying that these chemical sunscreens are absorbed in the bloodstream. Then patients were getting all worried, even though there have been no health effects ever, significant health side effects been seen in the last 40 years since these have been used. So it's all very challenging for the keeping patients putting the sunscreens on, yet they say, well, but is this safe? So that's a big kind of communications struggle. So that's really part one. And what we're doing is we're working with the FDA and actually trying to get them to get together with the sunscreen industry in order to figure out a way to get these tests done so that it becomes more practical. So that's part one. Now part two (laughs) has to do with the coral bleaching issue. So there are some studies in the lab showing that if you have a high enough concentration of chemical sunscreen, oxybenzone, and there's one other one, I always block on the name, but oxybenzone is the one we see the most, um, use the most, because it's the most effective UVA, UVB filter we have. So uh, if you use a high enough concentration, if there's enough of that in the water, that seems to contribute to coral bleaching. And because of those studies, there have been a couple of bands in Hawaii, Key West, and U.S. Virgin Islands. Have uh, Two of them are in 2021, I think. The U.S. Virgin Islands may be, more, may be sooner. And basically, they won't be able to sell them. U.S. Virgin Islands, you'll get fined if you bring them into U.S. Virgin Islands. So it's, it's becoming an issue. A couple of other places have, have defeated those pushes for the bands. 
And the, there was a study that just recently, very detailed study just was recently published showing that the uh, levels of those chemical agents in Hawaii near the corals where swimmers are swimming with those sunscreens on is less than an order, is more than, a, it's, it's one magnitude lower than the minimum amount needed to cause coral bleaching. So at least in current use, that does not seem to have a potential cause a problem because the amount in the water, even where there are people with those sunscreens is so low, it would not be able to cause damage to corals. The biggest threat to coral is, is the global warming is the, has, has been established as being the biggest threat. So we are right now, our advocacy efforts are to recommend that any places that consider these bands of sunscreens, they should really consider the science that's there on corals, but also weigh it against the fact that we know that sun exposure does cause skin cancer and patients die from skin cancer. So we have a definite threat here that we know we can reduce by using good sunscreens against something that is very uncertain at this point. So our recommendation is to really wait till there is more science to say one way or the other. I agree. And patients who are particularly worried about this, I always advise them there are other ways to protect your skin too. If you're really worried about using this and harming coral, wear sun protective clothing, avoid the sun during peak hours of the day, maybe try a physical blocker instead of some of the chemical sunscreens. And, and most patients are pretty open to those suggestions. So we've talked about a lot of different things that affect dermatologists. What can the practicing dermatologist do to help? How can they be involved? It's actually very important to be engaged and involved because our we have a very good Washington staff, but without the dermatologists helping out, it's very challenging. So it's very you can start out very easy. When you get one of these uh, AAD alerts telling you to email your congressman, congresswoman for some specific uh, issue, it's very easy. It's really only a few clicks. Ideally, you can put a little personal story into the. You can basically click on the email, and it just automatically just gets gets everything going very easily. It, you can really literally do it in about 10, 15 seconds. So that's the first one to do. Next up, of course, is come to the legislative conference. We have that every year in September. We have the second week in September. It's a lot of fun, actually. You learn a lot, but you also then go and do some grassroots advocacy to meet with your congresswomen and their staff, congressmen and staff to make an impact. Well, I've been very successful because my do I got my daughter to be an intern at my congresswoman's Washington office. Wow. So that's like, that's probably even better than the cell phone number. <laughs> so anyway, I just think it's, it's really important to be involved because then when there's an issue that comes up and you give them a call, they'll take your call. Sure. So that's what's so important. Well, you've certainly given our listeners a lot of different things to think about. You, we had a great update on all the advocacy efforts that are going on. You've also kind of inspired us to get involved a little bit more. Thank you very much for your time. Are there any concluding thoughts with which you'd like to leave our listeners? As I said, be engaged, be involved, get involved with the Academy, because we've got your back, but we need your help to achieve all the, th the great things we've been able to achieve so far. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Haruza.